Welcome to Radical Simple Living, episode 38. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been here with you. I apologise. Life has been busy here in small land in southern Sweden. Uh, for me, who's trying to be as self-sufficient as possible and grow my own food and do everything I can, um, make life easier, be less dependent on other people, this can be hard work. I'm reminded of that song from Porgy and Bess called Summertime and without singing it it starts off summertime and the living is easy, fish are jumping and the cotton is high. Well uh, that song you know was written by uh, George and Ira Gershwin and Debose Haywood who wrote the book that it was based on and I would say those three, two of them were from New York City and I would say they had very little idea of what summertime actually entails in the countryside. The idea of people in the deep south, although Haywood did come I think from South Carolina, but the idea that people spend their time in the summer sitting around watching fish jumping and watching the cotton grow is not very realistic. In actual fact, summertime has always been very hard work for everyone. Now, uh, I've been working hard in the last couple of weeks, getting two big jobs underway, one of which is working on getting the crops coming on because the main growing time is now well underway and I want a good harvest in the autumn. And I've had various things stand in my way, which I'll talk more about later on. And the other thing I've been doing is stacking wood. Now, um, basically every year I produce about a third of the wood I need myself from um, coppicing, from felling limbs off trees that are leaning out dangerously, from trees that fall over. And a few trees I've had to take out because they're growing in the wrong place and causing problems. But most of my wood, about two thirds of it, I order in. And the wood comes basically from areas of forest that have been cleared and the waste wood that's there at the end. And I got 10 cubic metres of wood delivered this year, which is, for those people that work in cords in North America, that's about three and a half cords. And I had about another one and a half cords from other places. So that gives me about five cords of wood for the winter, which is good. Now I have this sort of, um, I've told you before, my, my issues in life come from reading too much Laura Ingalls Wilder as a child. And I know the importance of starting winter with enough wood in. Now, if you live in a house that's got gas or, or electric central heating, you'll know if you have a particularly uh, harsh winter, uh, you just use more electricity or more gas. I know electricity and gas are both expensive. That's natural gas, of course. I know that um, electricity and natural gas are incredibly expensive, but there's always a little bit more unless something goes desperately wrong and governments and uh, gas and electricity companies have not secured enough products. And that's getting to be an issue. But if you burn wood, you're really relying on making sure you have enough wood in for the winter. If you get it wrong, it's no good trying to ring round in January or February to see if you can find some extra wood from somewhere. You can't. And A, that snow is probably too deep to deliver. 
and uh, it's just not going to work so you have to make sure you have enough wood in and one of the things I've learned this will be coming up to my seventh yeah it'll be my seventh winter in Sweden is that some years are better than others and why some years some winters are fairly mild by 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 Swedish standards others are pretty cold and it's not really the depth of cold that affects how much wood you need in uh, winter here in Sweden it's how long winter is um, lots of places in North America get a lot colder than southern Sweden you know Americans are always telling me you know how cold it is there and, and they're surprised when I tell them the temperatures we reach at we go down to about minus 20 Celsius I'm not going to do that in Fahrenheit I can't do it uh, minus 20 Celsius uh, regularly in winter uh, and occasionally we go down much colder than that but we don't get the intense colds the minus 40s and things that some people in the northeast of the US suffered last winter but what we do get is a much longer winter winter could start the snow could start in mid-October early October sometimes and there can still be snow on the ground into late April. So although our um, winters aren't particularly cold by world standards, they are long. And it's the same thing with snowfall. We don't get the same kind of snowfall that you have in, the, in Canada and the US, or much of Canada anyway, where you get incredible snowstorms because you've got this huge continental mass and you get snowstorms and, and vast amounts of snowfall overnight. We just have, it doesn't rain much here in summer and it doesn't snow much here in winter either. But the snow that does fall snows around. So we get a build up of snow over a period of time and eventually um, that adds up to quite a bit. Snow falls on top of the snow that fell the time before and it tends to build up. And okay, on a good year it will thaw in between times, but on a bad year the snow is just stuck there for months and months and months on end and goes on getting a bit deeper and deeper and deeper and you have to keep on clearing it from pathways and so on. So getting the wood ready for winter is a big thing and I never feel happy until my barn is full uh, of timber. Um, uh, dried seasoned wood that's going to keep me warm all winter no central heating here it's wood um, okay there's electricity to back up if you need it and uh, that's there but basically it's wood that keeps us going and it's even more important because although wood has got more expensive electricity here in Sweden is very very pricey indeed as it is in most European countries now I'm afraid so I had my big wood delivery uh, just over a week and a half ago and it took me about five days to get it all stacked and sorted nicely um, sorted because I burn mixed wood and I like to stack it in such a way that I'm regularly coming up against different bits of wood uh, you know and mixing those together to burn for a smooth burn so that's one of the things. Now there's more work to be done on that front because of course all the way through the winter you're busy bringing wood into the house. So I keep fit all the way through the snow bringing the wood into the house. And that's good, I like it. I love 
heating a house with wood because you know that if there are power cuts, if there are big storms, if there's if companies are unable to provide electricity, you've got the wood, you're okay. I can cook on the wood stove if need be. Um, I can do all sorts of things. I can keep the house warm and it's important and it's always been important in this part of Sweden as in any, many other parts of the north. Now, as well as stacking the wood, I've had to be washing. Now, last time I spoke to you, we had gone through an incredibly long period of time without any rain whatsoever. And that had caused the well to dip very low and the crops to need to be watered pretty much every day because it was so hot and so windy and so dry. Well, the good news since then is it has rained on a number of occasions. We had a really good rainfall, um, which was pretty widely predicted, which did a lot of good. And then since then, we've had subsequent days of rain. And now it's turning into quite a sort of damp summer because you never can tell. I'm delighted because... Another month without rain would have seen my crops virtually finished off this year, I'm afraid. And another two months without rain, you know, you could have had a dry May, June and July, would have been bad news for the local environment generally because it's after three months that trees start to die and all sorts of problems come from that. We had that a few years ago in uh, 2018. So uh, I was pleased to see the rain. However, the rain hasn't made that much difference. I had a look in the well yesterday. It's not much higher than it was in the drought. It takes a long time to bring those water levels up again. And if I go into the garden and put a, a trowel into the soil somewhere where I haven't been watering, it might be damp on the surface, but a couple of... Uh, uh, well, an inch down, it's dry soil. So there are still problems. We could still do with more rain. We could do with more rain and more sunshine and rain and sun because everybody that grows vegetables is never happy, are they? They always think, oh, it's too much rain. When I lived on the Welsh borders, the rain used to fall out of the sky in bucket loads. You know, you would write in your diary if you had a day without rain some summers. And it was very wet, but the vegetables grew like anything and the soil was wet to a good depth and there was no problem with water shortage in Wales at all. Here, it's always touch and go. You're always living for the next rainfall. I don't mind that because I love small and where I live. It's the most wonderful part of the world. And uh, I'm going to tell you a bit more about that in a while. But before I do that, I have to report on the badgers. Because if you remember last time I spoke to you, the badgers were causing havoc in my garden. Wherever I'd been watering, they were coming at night, throwing plants out the way and digging deep to get any worms and uh, larvae that they could in the soil where it was wet. And my theory was that when it rained, the badgers would be happy digging around for worms, which is the main component of their diet in the woods, and they wouldn't bother me anymore. Well, that has proved to be the case. Since it started raining, not a single piece of badger damage has been done in my garden, which is good because I'm glad the 
badgers have got their normal hunting grounds uh, back in operation. But it's good, that means I can plant things and they're still going to be there the next day. Now I have, unfortunately, also got a slug problem. And all the time it was dry there were no slugs. Now there are thousands of slugs. I'm virtually surrounded by woodland. There's a road to one side of my property and there's a house to the other. But the rest of the thing, I'm surrounded by woodland and the slugs just crawl in. You know, all the advice you get from... Um, gardening sites that say oh you know keep your garden clear of leaves and debris well I can't keep it clear of leaves and debris if I'm surrounded by woodland um, so I can't control the slugs that way I've got to try and outwit the slugs and so far it's slugs one me nil that's the way it's going I go out every morning I go out every evening on slug hunts but I don't think I have any real impact on the slug population. They seem to build up all the time. And the one bit of advice I can give to people is if you grow a lawn with lots of dandelions in it, um, the slugs will stop on the way to your vegetable plot and eat the dandelions instead. So dandelions in the lawn really do stop the slugs making towards your vegetable patches. Some of the things in the garden are doing well. Potatoes, I think, are doing very well indeed. Peas are doing well. Broad beans, runner beans, mm, fair to middling. Early days yet. Um, the onions would have been good if they weren't uh, disturbed by badgers. They're, they're, as it is, they're developing broad necks and some are going to seize because they were all dug up and thrown everywhere one night. Leeks have gone in and they're okay. Leafy crops I'm doing okay with some of. Tomatoes are doing okay. Um, I, I lost all my cucumbers, so no cucumbers this year because it was too late to re-sow. But I have managed to solve a, uh, to salvage, sorry, a couple of um, courgette plants, a zucchini if you prefer, uh, and a pumpkin plant. But they're very late because these were ones I had to re-sow after they've been destroyed twice. Carrots are doing well, my turnips are suffering from the slugs, my kohlrabi is suffering from slugs, my winter radish is suffering from slugs. As far as fruit go, goes, that's all going well. There is a danger that if you have a very long dry summer, the apples don't develop properly, but they are developing properly. Uh, I've established my plants here for more than four or five years, and so they've got deep roots and they can get down to the water. Soft fruit, red currants, blackberries, um, black currants, white currants, raspberries. All of these are doing well. And the first harvest will be this month. Bumper crop of rhubarb and lots of, of perennial things. The Welsh onion, uh, Egyptian onions, chives. Um, lots of herbs, all doing well. So I, I, I will have lots to eat and I, I have already started doing some canning of rhubarb and stuff like that. This week it will be gooseberries and if you think I've already done my gooseberries, everything's a little bit later here remember because I'm in the north. So gooseberries, red currants will be in the next week or so and then I will start on canning beans, big time. I, I don't think I can have too many cans of beans, that's what I want. Now, as well as the slugs, the other 
uh, invaders, if you like, when it gets wet, are mosquitoes. When I was stacking the wood, I got very hot. I always wear long sleeves. Uh, I'm a, a, a pasty person by nature with Scottish jeans and I don't cope well with sun. It burns me, so I wear long sleeves. The mosquitoes bit me through the sleeves. They bit me through my jeans. They bit me on my face. They bit the back of my hand. They, so I'm covered in mosquito bites, which I, I don't react to badly. The first ones of the season are a bit of a problem. Worse than that are the tick bites. I've had a new tick bite a day for the last week. And anybody that lives in the tick part of the world will know that uh, a tick bite, generally, even if you get the tick off instantly, a tick bite will itch for three days. And when I mean itch, it will seriously, it will wake you up in the night to itch. And I just thought I was on day three of most of my tick bites when I got another one yesterday right on my ankle. And um, this is a problem because I do have to spend some of the time working in the woods. I do have to spend some of the time going in the woods because I grow some crops, fruit bushes and things up in the woodland. I need to look after them. All I can do is use pyrethium. Now, pyrethium isn't uh, an artificial chemical. It's basically an extract of chrysanthemums. And chrysanthemums, many of you grow, have natural defences against insects. They don't do so well on the old uh, earwig front, as I recall. But they, they do produce this pyrethium thing. And what I do is I spray a bit of pyrethium on my... Um, on my boots, on my boot laces, on the bottom of my trousers, and then when I go out, I'm vaguely protected. I also spray my hat with a bit of citronella to stop uh, the mosquitoes. The only real thing that stops mosquitoes is the kind of, of shirt you're wearing. If you, if you really want to stop mosquitoes biting you, this has been a, a long, hard lesson for me. Um, first of all, don't wear light colours. It's a hot day. I'll wear a white shirt or a pale blue shirt. No, the mosquitoes love pale colours. They will go for you. So even though it's a hot day, wear a darker blue shirt um, uh, or a red shirt. Any colour shirt as long as it's dark. They also don't like patterns. So if you get some sort of of um, tartan design on your shirt, check. They, they will attack you less than if you're uh, wearing a plain shirt. But apart from that, the mosquitoes will get you, the ticks will properly get you too. Well, why do I do it all? Why do I do it here where there are so many insects and such dodgy weather and, and such awful soil? The answer is, small land is an incredibly wonderful place to live. Um, I've lived in lots of places around the UK. Sweden is my first home outside the UK. But small land has such a range of seasons you in, in britain there are times when you could wake up and look out the window and not be sure what month of the year it was because it's sort of drizzling and a bit gray um, in sweden summer is summer it's long it's glorious it's beautiful it's sunny the sun shines long i haven't seen darkness for weeks because it's like when i get up and i get up very early before five o'clock every day um, I go to bed by about 10 o'clock and it's still light then. It does, get a, it does get a bit dark here. In northern Sweden, of course, it doesn't get dark at all. 
but the days are long, they're sunny, it's glorious. The wildlife in small land is fantastic. I'm not just talking about the big wildlife, I'm not just talking about the elk and the deer and the boar and the hares, the magnificent sized hares we have here. Um, it's also insects. There are butterflies, there are crickets, there are just... It's teeming with wildlife. Uh, reptiles, amphibians, they're all over the place. It's absolutely wonderful place to be. I think in my first year in Sweden I saw more wildlife than I had in the previous 10 years in Britain, that's for certain sure. So all of Europe used to be like this once, but southern Smallland with its uh, southern Sweden in Smallland with its low population and its lack of interference is is wonderful place to live. But there's one problem I haven't told you about in Smallland and this is it. Let's say you want to plant a tree. What do you do? You spend a bit of time thinking about it, talking about it with others in the household, deciding where you want to plant the tree. Then you go out and you dig a hole and you plant the tree. In small land, you do the same thing up until the point where you go out to dig a hole and you put your spade in the ground and you hit a boulder. And then you decide somewhere else and you hit another boulder. And you may have to explore four or five places where you can find anywhere to plant your tree where it gets a chance to, to thrive. And they do thrive because we're in a forest, so trees do find their way through, but it's very difficult. And the reason for this is the, the Scandinavian Ice Age, the, the, the Ice Age here was the same as the Ice Age everywhere else, but the Scandinavian Ice Age was a particularly deep layer of glacier over the top of the Scandinavian peninsula. It was deeper in some places than others and I tried to do some research on this to find out a bit more about it for you. But basically here um, the general idea is that there was a 9,200 foot of, of ice over Smallland. The ice was 9,000 Sorry, 9,800, I correct myself, 9,800 foot deep ice. That's 3,000 metres of ice for um, metric listeners. 3,000 metres of ice, three kilometres deep of ice. Over my house here, I would have had to dig through three kilometres of ice to get to the sky. And all the way through that process, there were boulders moving around on the top because, you know, glaciers carry boulders um, and they carry them for thousands of miles very, very slowly. But then there came a time when the ice started to melt and when it melted, all of the stones and boulders and rocks were dumped in my land here. It's not just my land. They were dumped all over Smallland. Smallland, apart from a bit of northern Spain, is the rockiest part of Europe. And it does make uh, gardening and growing a challenge. It can be done. I use lots of raised beds. There are some places where somebody has cleared stones with horses sometime in the past. People have been living on this site since the Iron Age, so a lot of work like that has done, has gone on. But basically... You're up against boulders all the time. And it's a challenge, but it can be done. And I, I do quite well. I do quite well, considering. It's not as easy as it is gardening in lots of other parts of the world. But there we go. Now, 
While we're on the topic of the Ice Age, the Swedish government is planning to make lots of plants illegal in Sweden. And they're going to be made illegal because these are invasive species. Now I have problems with this because I'm all against invasive species if that invasive species is seen to be a problem. But when the ice melted over the Scandinavian peninsula, there were no plants. There was nothing growing here. It was completely barren. So every plant that you see growing in Smallland today, if you walk through the forests and the fields, every plant has been invasive. It's been introduced from somewhere else. And when the Swedish government says that such plants as lupins and goldenrod are to be classified as invasive species, that makes me wonder. Okay, lupins do grow everywhere here. They come from North America. I think they come over from the far northwest of the US and into, into British Columbia originally. But they're here in Sweden and because the conditions here are, are very similar uh, in terms of the long winters they like and the cold for stratification. There's lots of lupins growing everywhere. But I ask myself, what do those lupins do that is harmful? Well, they're an invasive species, I know. But the lupins are great for pollinating insects. And anyone that says they're not can come into my garden and look and see how many Wild bees come and feed from lupin flowers in my garden every day. People can say, oh, they're damaging, but they are legumes. They add nitrogen to the soil. They improve soil fertility. And above all, if you want to get rid of them, they're not too much of a problem. You can pull them up and the plant and the roots come up and you get them, deadhead them before they seed and they don't spread too much. So they're not uncontrollable. So I do think that sometimes, and goldenrod, really, that's got to be classed as an invasive plant. I don't know. And there's also invasive animals. One of them is the leopard slug. Well, the leopard slug comes to my garden and eats other slugs. I love leopard slugs. They do a wonderful job. I would pin medals on them if it didn't hurt. Um, so they're going to be classed invasive species. Well, a, what can you do about leopard slugs? You can't tell them to go home again. They're here now. I think we have to accept them. One of the plants that's on this invasive species list is the ragged rose. This is known in some parts. It's Rosa rugosa, for those of you that like your uh, uh, Latin names. It's also called the Japanese rose. And my front hedge uh, is made out of these. I didn't plant them myself. But they were planted by a German family that owned the house before me. And they can be a problem. They come up all over the place and I am getting rid of those. But the problem is if I take the hedge out, then in the winter all the deer are going to come off the road into my front garden and destroy everything. Rose bushes, you know, other rose bushes and young trees and all sorts of things like this. So what I'm having to do... I am planting a new hedge and I'm planting a hedge entirely of native plants. So this is hawthorn and um, beech and oak. I like oak in a hedge, it works very well. And honeysuckle and uh, dog rose, which is a, a native species, native since the Ice Age anyway, went away. And things like that. 
But what I've got to do is plant this hedge this summer in bits and pieces. I want it mixed because I had a wonderful mixed hedge in Wales and I, I miss it. And I want it of native species and I want it that it doesn't tear my flesh apart every year when I try and cut it back, which is what the rugged rose was doing. So I've got to plant a new hedge behind the hedge that exists already. And then when next year, when the new hedge has grown up a bit, I leave it until about this time next year, then I'm going to start taking out the rugged rose hedge that is in front of it and then plant another layer so the, the, the new hedge will be two layers thick. This is the kind of job I love. It takes hours, it takes years before you see any real effect. But it's good because I feel I'm doing some good there. I feel I'm going to help wildlife with a native hedge and if I plant it, it will... Oh, let's see, it should be there in a hundred years time. And I'll be old by then, even I will be old in a hundred years time, so I, I look forward to seeing that and I'll make a podcast about it, remind you of this one. Okay, now, um, b before you think of it and before you think, oh, you know, the badgers and the drought and the slugs and the mosquitoes and the ticks and the rocks, why does he do it? The reason is because I love living in the countryside, I love living in Sweden, I love small land in particular, I love to be surrounded by wildlife, I love to grow my own food, I love to live the kind of life that means I'm as self-sufficient as I can be. And I also like to think that if the electricity goes off because of political, in Europe there are political reasons why that could happen, there's economic reasons why that could happen, I'm going to be warm and be able to cook food and keep warm in my house, and my children will too. I also know that um, whatever happens in the world outside, being able to grow your own food and being able to produce at least some of your own fuel is a good feeling. And that's why I like it. And every bit of backbreaking hard work, every tick bite and every mosquito bite is worth it because I get to live the kind of life I want to live. Okay, I will try not to be um, so late with my next podcast. This series is winding up uh, in just two podcasts time, and I will start uh, series two sometime after that. Thank you for listening. If you're new to the podcast, do try some of my older uh, podcasts, which cover all areas of simple living basically radical simple living that's what it's all about because simple living is one thing radical simple living is a step deeper into that new personal revolution that you can take as well as me okay i hope you will excuse me this little excursion into my life here in small land it's been good talking with you hope to see you again soon bye for now <laughs>